0: Welcome to the Strive For More podcast. My name is Jared Hendry and I'm the founder of Strive. We're a group of young entrepreneurs that you've probably never heard of. In our weekly meetings we share keystone habits that can change the lives of the other entrepreneurs in the group. And now I want to share those habits with you. Each week you'll get access to what we call the teachable moment. And that focuses on improving the quality of our health, wealth and relationships. Today, I'm really fortunate to be joined by Ally McGarrigal. Ally is the program manager of Talent Acceleration at Clio, a legal technology company based in Burnaby, BC, where she is helping to prove it's possible to build and scale a human and high performing organization. Ally has worn many hats over the course of her time in HR, but is particularly passionate about creating transformative learning experiences for individuals and for teams. Allie completed her master's degree at the London School of Economics in Organizational Psychology, where she wrote her thesis on psychological safety in teams. Outside of work, her time is mainly spent chasing around a puppy and getting out in nature as much as possible. Allie, it's an honor to have you with us today. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for inviting me, Jared.
0: So I have known you as someone that is really passionate about improving and achieving and making a difference in the world. and. I think it's interesting to look back and just briefly explore your history and how you got here. And after that, we'll dive into the organizational psychology world. So what attracted you to organizational psychology in the first place? And why'd you even choose the London School of Economics?
1: Yeah, um, great question. I feel like I could go very far back with that one, but I'll save you. Um, Let's
0: start at like three years old and work up.
1: Yeah, let's let's do it. Let's start with (laughs) psychology. Um, Yeah, I know. I mean, I think I've always just been really interested in um, the psychology of people. Um, I think what makes us different, what makes us tick, uh, what leads to sort of human performance and growth and potential. And I think it was in my last couple of years, my undergrad, that I started to explore positive psychology, which is kind of the realm of psychology that looks beyond just getting people back to, to baseline, which is a lot of kind of what you see with traditional clinical psychology and more thinking about how do we help people um, accelerate beyond that? And so I started to kind of explore, okay, what are potential career paths where I can actually um, focus on some of this stuff. And I think the world of work is, is definitely one area where psychology comes into play. And a lot of us are kind of trying to discover our purpose and our potential and push ourselves. So this was a program that I came across and, I think the fact that it was abroad in London was definitely a bonus, getting to have some of that sort of international experience, getting to, to live elsewhere outside of Canada. Um, and the program was also uh, advertised as being really applicable. So many programs in Canada take you on the kind of a PhD track, which is awesome. But I also knew I kind of wanted to, to move beyond academics and start applying some of this stuff to, to the real world.
0: This whole time, I thought you were in London, Ontario.
1: <laughs> no. Yeah.
0: That's an awful joke. Um <laughs> I'm really I'm really interested to know that positive psychology piece that you mentioned. What got you into that in the first place?
1: Yeah, I mean it's funny. I think I had very little understand I think intuitively a psychology is a great field because we all have a bit of a, an intuitive understanding of psychology. We're all our own subjects, right? Understanding how we yeah. work. And I think I've always been fascinated, you know, playing sports and whatnot my whole life as to know what pushed me and made me excel. And then um, at the University of Victoria, where I did my undergrad, there was an actual course in positive psychology that I sort of I I took as an elective. And I learned about um, it's these two terms. One is um, like hedonic. sort of like hedonic happiness, which is that idea of, um, you know, what are what are instantaneous gratifications? What are things that we we live for on a daily basis that help us um, sort of be happy in the moment? And then more more of that, like eudaimonic happiness, which is that idea of what pushes us, which what helps us thrive. And in the moment, it may not feel great. um, But it's kind of what accelerates us in many ways. And I think I just really resonated with that.
0: So what you're saying is that that inherent drive to achieve in the moment can be very difficult like you've got to go up and speak on a stage and that people get anxiety about that and get nervous about that but in the long run that's actually good for them
1: totally right it's i mean it's the thing i think all of us struggle with on a daily basis is like motivation and recognizing that so much of um what can get in our way is that like moment to moment feeling or emotion um but I think it's kind of being able to recognize that we're a lot more capable than what we give ourselves credit for. And I'm sure your audience, all being entrepreneurs, already think about this stuff and push themselves to to do these kind of things. And I I was just really deeply fascinated by sort of the, the psychology and the science behind it.
0: With that note, can you speak a bit to organizational um, psychology in general? Like, what is it for our yeah. audience that may not know?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I find it like, in, in and of itself, I've, I've struggled to define it over the years as well. Um, but what I think is, is useful in thinking about organizational psychology, um, especially my degree, which is organizational and social psychology, it's kind of thinking about how do humans behave in a social setting? So we often think about psychology as being a really personal experience, but there's a lot of, um, there's a huge impact that our social setting has on us, other people, how we interact with them, how we're motivated um, when working with others. And then it's kind of taking that piece and putting it within organizations. So recognizing that um, when we're working with other people in organizations, so much of our job is just navigating relationships and figuring out yeah. how do we actually work together in an effective way. And so organizational psychology is truly being able to figure out how do we create healthy organizations where people thrive, and in that process, enable them to perform better.
0: I love that. We're gonna get into that obviously in more detail, but before we do that, I'd just like to talk about your employer for a little bit. So you're working for a legal technology startup company. Well, I shouldn't even say startup. I think you're quite big now. You've got 150 employees or something like that. Um, Can you tell us just a little bit about- Yeah. Sorry?
1: We're actually five hundred employees now.
0: Whoa! Okay, I checked a while ago. Yeah. So can yeah. you tell us? Can you tell us a little bit about the organization? What do they do?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, like you said, um, we are a tech company. We were um, founded by uh, two co-founders named Jack and Ryan. They started Clio up about eleven years ago now, and we're headquartered in Burnaby, BC. We have offices in. Um, Toronto, Calgary, uh, and two smaller offices in Calgary and, or sorry, in uh, California and Dublin. Um, and we're 500 people, so we're we're growing. And I started about almost four years ago now, and we were about 150 at the time. So we've more than tripled in that time, which has been r- wow. really cool. Kind see the scale and the process that goes into that. Um, but yeah, we we have a cloud-based practice management software for lawyers, um, which is really cool. I think what is the interesting piece, and we'll probably dive into more, is is sort of the kind of approach to building an organization that Clio has taken, which I think differentiates us from maybe some other tech organizations.
0: Your title is the Talent Acceler the Program Manager of Talent Acceleration. Is that a unique spin on HR or is that a totally unique thing to Clio?
1: Yeah, so it's honestly a fancy way of saying like a learning and development manager in many ways. Um, I'm sort of responsible for the programming around leadership development, onboarding, manager training, a lot of those pieces. So it's sort of like internal development
0: as a manager myself i need a lot of training so i'm going to hit you up and i we're not in the same industry but i hope
1: i think it all applies across the board so yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: actually speaking of that you're this is honestly not the first time that i have asked for your advice we're going to get into psychology psychological safety at some point down the road here as a topic yeah. of conversation but i remember a couple of years ago you were very very crucial in uh, my own learning and development as a manager. When I reached out to you, and I had this interest in psychological safety because Google had done this big study on it, and you provided me with all of these resources. And so I've I've always just been very grateful of the the effort and time and, and the learning that you did kind of help me with at that time. So thank you.
1: Of course, yeah. Was it was it actually useful?
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it totally wasn't. I actually ended up going on to present at a national conference on psychological safety for for ultrasound.
1: Oh my gosh! amazing, Jared. Well i I'd, I'd love to yeah, hear what you've learned in the process being the one applying it, especially in like that settings where I think psychological safety and in hospitals and in like the healthcare industry at large is is a really like a massively important topic.
0: Yeah, I fully agree with you. Al, your background is in organizational psychology. Obviously, you work on building culture and getting teams to to really work closely together. So I'm interested to know. From you, given what you've learned from working with Clio, from your didactic knowledge, from the additional kind of learning that you've gone through. What have you learned about building culture in general?
1: Yeah, you know what I think is so funny, the <laughs> learning about culture theoretically in things like my obviously in my education, and then really being a part of it and building one. I think they're um they're both useful and and feed off one another but they're different they're different beasts
0: how are those different
1: Um, yeah so I, I think what's helpful is in a bit of a way to start with the definition of culture which is probably like the theory piece um and I think what's what's easy to say when you're when you're looking at it from a theoretical lens is you're a bit like arm's reach from it but when you're in it and building it, you're part of the culture, right? You're a lot of what makes up the culture are are kind of the the assumptions you make, the things that are, the way you're acting, all of that. So it often becomes a bit more difficult to, to look at it with um, an objective lens. But I think I'm getting a, a little bit ahead of myself. If I, um, to kind of go back to, to what I think about um, as culture, I think it's really easy to look at the, sort of the artifacts or more of the, I don't wanna say the artificial things, but the things that we see in front of us, things like um, who's part of the organization, what's the dress code, what are, uh, what's the language that's being used, what's the, um, the games that are in your lounge or whether or not you have beer on tap or a ping pong table and those kind of components and define that as culture. And I think that's one piece of it. Um, but I think the, the thing I've learned over the years as being the most important part of culture are kind of the non-tangible pieces. It's the things like the assumptions that we hold about how things work in an organization. Um, and companies that have the healthiest culture is where assumptions and words align really well. So what we say are our values, the way we, we say um, is how we want to operate actually aligns with um, our beliefs about the organization. And that's truly easier said than done in many ways to, to get that right.
0: How do you do that?
1: How do you do that? I think it takes, honestly, I think it takes up holding, it takes holding a mirror up to yourself a lot, especially with your leadership team. Um, So ultimately, the people that are going to be spearheading the culture that you're creating and setting the tone around are going to be your senior leadership. It takes everyone contributes to a culture and they all build it. But people are looking continuously to leaders to say, what is an okay way for me to behave? What gets rewarded? What doesn't? All of these things signal in an organization, um, what are the things we actually care about? Right." And if you go and have a list of values on your wall, um, but then go and act in the opposite way or don't use them at all to make decisions, then that's when you get, um, you can end up having a culture that deteriorates quickly.
0: So you started out with Clio, they were at 150 employees. They've now grown to 500. So you've seen some really impressive growth. I kind of want to dial it back and think about the entrepreneurs in my life and, and those of the individuals that I interact with and just think about, as we're starting out to create a culture, how how can we do that for entrepreneurs that maybe haven't even hired their first employee yet? Or maybe they've got five or 10 people on their team. How do you really set a strong culture from the beginning?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, I think there's a few things that you can do. I think first off, hiring at the, in, in your early days as a company, it's always important, but I think it's ex- it's particularly crucial um, because those first few hires, right? They're gonna be the ones that are really setting the cultural tone of your organization and the ones that are going to be um, creating almost that like multiplier effect. They're gonna continue to hire others. They're gonna be speaking about your organization. They're gonna be in effect building it with you. And so I think getting that right off the bat and actually putting in place a process for how do you assess um, what are these people's values that are joining your company? Right? What are you looking for in someone and dedicating some of that time in your interview or over coffee or whatever that looks like to move beyond just the the technical pieces of the role to really assess. I think what some organizations refer to as culture fit or culture ad. The other piece is absolutely awareness. So if you have an understanding of what goes into culture, and I think it's Kind of as I said before, it's not just what you see and say, but it's also the assumptions that are made based on your actions. As a leader, being really, really aware of as to how do your, how does what you say and how does what you do align um, is key right from the get go.
0: Is there any optimal interview strategy or how as you're hiring people, is there a best way to go about that?
1: yeah um i mean i don't know if we found a perfect solution i think at cleo we were exceptionally lucky to have um one of our co-founders who was truly deeply dedicated to um the culture we were building in the organization we we often referred to his name's ryan govro and refer to him as sort of the heartbeat of the organization and ryan took it upon himself from day one up until we were you know more than 350 people to interview absolutely every single person in the organization. Um, Obviously it got to a certain point where that did not scale and Ryan's entire calendar was filled with meetings. We had to figure out a different solution and that actually looked like training up some others in the organization to do what we refer to as, as the, the culture interview.
0: What does that look like? Can you share any, any details from that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't have, um, an exact recipe for what that looks like, but a lot of it had came down to decision-making within our in sort of in our values. So actually being able to um, assess what would you do in some of these scenarios and place that against here, like the values that we have at Cleo, and we have seven values um, that we use as our own kind of like decision-making rubric in the organization. And so as much as we could, we tried to use a little bit of behavioral um, of, of a behavioral assessment in that. And then I think deep diving into like, what motivates you? What do you care about? What energizes you? Right. And as much as you can connecting with that person on a really real level. So it doesn't feel like a like an interview setting, just getting to know them as a person. And again, sometimes some people have a knack for that. And I think Ryan deeply had a knack for that. Um, But sometimes it's like doing that over coffee or doing that in a setting where it doesn't feel as formal, where you can get to know that person, especially in early days.
0: It's interesting from what you're saying right now, I can see a couple of parallels from previous interviews. One was with a guy named Mitch Gudgeon, who's the CEO of a company called TalentFit. And they are an artificial intelligence based HR company, and they match employers with employees based on values. And so you were talking about that value matching system. And I, I really resonate with that. I think that that's probably where the future is going. Um, and they're doing some really great things at talent fit as well. Another one was just recently Tate Hackert, and they have put in a new interview process just recently. And a part of that is an an interview that's an hour and a half long and they do it intentionally that duration because he Mm -hmm. argues and and his colleagues argued that You can't fake being nice or um, polite or really driven for an hour and a half. And so the interviews are like really, really intense by design.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think whatever you can do to help that person put their guards down. Right. If if you're in an environment where that is pressure prompted and you need to you need to test ultimately, how do they show up? Um, in an environment like that, that's probably the right route, right? To, to put this person under pressure, give them some sort of a test or whatever they might be doing and see how they show up. Um, I think ultimately, whatever you can do to help that person feel at ease, like they don't need to put on a show. And sometimes, as the, the person interviewing, that can be allowing yourself to get a little bit vulnerable first. Right. Sharing some things about yourself, maybe things that you're working on or whatever that may be that allows that person to feel invited in to do the same. Right. That they don't need to have a mask on in this process.
0: That's a really good point. I I think we can probably all resonate with that or any of us that have had a job can resonate with going to an interview and not trying to be somebody else, but very much feeling that pressure of being judged and it's a very difficult thing to overcome and so another thing that i resonate with like you just said is how do we kind of get that guard down and really see who the person is
1: yeah yeah and i I think of interviews so often as being you know a an alignment between two people right it's not just about the interviewee going in and, and selling themselves they're also coming in to communicate what are they looking for in an organization um, what can they bring to the table? What do they expect in return, right? And it's more saying, hey, are we meeting each other's expectations in this transaction, right? Are we going to work well together? Is this the kind of organization I want to be a part of? Um, am I going to feel like I can do the best work of my career in a place like this? And so I think it's just as much them interviewing on their end.
0: Can you give any recommendations for additional reading for folks that are trying to create that culture? What's kind of the what are some of the best pieces in the culture world that we can follow up on? And just as an FYI for the listeners, I'll put these in the show notes as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't have anything specific to hiring per se. Um, It's been a while since I've done any sort of recruitment in my role, but I do have a couple books that I think have sort of set the philosophy underlying our own culture. And again, you've got to choose what is the kind of culture you're looking to create. Um, But the first one is called An Everyone Culture, uh, Creating a Deliberately Developmental Organization. This was a book created by a couple of developmental psychologists, uh, Keegan Leahy, and they went off and actually sort of did a... um, like an ethnography of different organizations. They they spent time in them. They understood their practices. They kind of tried to figure out what made them different. And these were organizations that were, were taking development to an extreme. So they were looking, how do we set um, the, the right conditions for people to develop quickly and to thrive in what they do? And so... Um, they're pretty radical examples. Like there's, there's some organizations that they're, they're speaking to where every single meeting is recorded so that there's full transparency across the organization Bridgewater. or there are live Bridgewater. Absolutely. So Bridgewater was one of the uh, companies named in that book. And I think it's fascinating. I don't think it's for every organization by any means, but it kind of gives you a good grasp of like, what are, what are the fundamentals that underlie, um, basically human development, right? What will make us completely excel? And not everyone's ready for an environment like that, right? Not everyone's going to sign up for that, but um, it's definitely an interesting thought experiment and to think about how do you want to adapt your culture? Uh, And then the other one, and we haven't really talked too much about this, but I think it's really critical from the beginning uh, is is creating a feedback enabled culture. And a really good book for that one is uh, a book called Radical Candor by Kim Scott.
0: That's actually come across my radar. I haven't read it, though.
1: Yeah, it's it's a really good one. It's it's very good specifically for people managers, um, because she gives you a lot of really practical advice um, for kind of creating this as a philosophy in everything you do. But essentially, sort of the, the summary of it is, is that um, in order to be really effective at feedback, at communication, you need to do two things really well. And that's say what's on your mind, right? So not sugarcoat things, um, not hide things, not, um, you know, say one thing to someone else and then not say it to someone else or give feedback to other people, just be able to tell the person like it is, but also, um, do it from a place of care. So how do you show that person that you have their best interest, uh, in mind that you're, you're giving this in service of them getting better or because, for whatever reason, um, this is what's going to help you collectively be successful. And so I think that book really dives well in, into that philosophy and what are the pitfalls if you don't operate in that way, both as an individual, but kind of at scale as an organization.
0: I love every mention of Bridgewater. So for those that don't know, Bridgewater is a hedge fund. And I think most people, when they think of Bridgewater, Or when they think of a hedge fund they don't think of you know the best culture to work in they think of this very 1980s culture that's very cocaine fueled and (laughs) drug and booze and um but yet ray dalio who's the founder of bridgewaters really created a very very unique culture on the basis of radical transparency so everybody is expected to say what's on their mind to um to ensure that the best decisions get made, and so that voices don't get silenced, you can correct me where I'm wrong there, but that's kind of a general synopsis.
1: Absolutely, yeah, it's it's pretty intense. Honestly, some of the practices they have in place, like it's not for the faint of heart, and um, you know, I don't think we'd all sign up for a place like that. But they've really, I think that's where you're really showing that alignment with your values and what you say you value and your actions, right? They've put the right. Sort of scaffolding in place to make sure that everything they do aligns to the things that they care about as a company.
0: There's an app that like you spoke about how it's not for everybody and they have an app that everybody has on their tablets or their computers or their phones so they'll be sitting in meetings they're there with the CEO the guy's worth 20 billion dollars and everybody in the room is using this app I think it's called the dot collector app and everybody rates each other's presentations on a scale of one to 10, and then they'll give reasons. So they'll say like uh, Ray's presentation was a seven in convincing, his logic was a two, I think he missed this point, this point, and this point. And they'll criticize from the CEO to the janitor, for example, um, which I think is mind blowing.
1: Yeah, and I think what's so interesting is why this feeds so well actually into the the other book I mentioned around radical candor is it's so easy for organizations um, that practice radical transparency, that practice um, giving each other feedback, especially publicly, to fall into that space of being obnoxiously aggressive with one another, so coming off as basically looking like the asshole, right? Where you're, you're intimidated to go up to um, that senior leader or anyone else in the organization, because you just don't know what they're going to say to you, if they're going to humiliate you in public. Um, I can't speak to, you know, how they build safety in a place like Bridgewater, or how they um, show care for one another. But I think that's something at Clio that we, we teach, and we practice heavily is, Leaning into the space of being able to say what's on our mind, but also thinking about how it's going to land for that person, right? Ultimately, should we be giving that feedback in public? Should that be a private conversation between two people? Um, while also trying to move quickly, right?
0: Yeah, that is an awfully difficult balance. And I think if I was to choose an organization, I'd probably lean more toward the ones that cared about my feelings, as opposed to the one that said I suck, but I can see the, I can see the merits of yeah. both.
1: Totally, and it's tough too because if you lean too heavily on the on the side of of caring about others' feelings, right, you can you can hold back from from saying the things that need to be said. And I would say um, that's something we've struggled with here, that we've had to really work at is being honest with each other, um, right? Not having those side conversations, not being too worried about saying the honest truth because it might hurt someone's feelings or um, in some way, impact the relationship. So it's, it's a, it's a tough balance.
0: The final piece on culture here is around a book that I read recently. It's called What You Do Is Who You Are by a guy named Ben Horowitz. And Ben Horowitz founded a venture capital firm called Andreessen Horowitz, but he's always really cared about culture. And the book is all about how good cultures are formed. One thing that he says is that good cultures, as he looked back throughout history, have had really strong rules. So for example, he gave the story of the New York Giants and they had a new coach that came in, they're a football team, NFL football team, and the new coach realized that the players weren't very disciplined. And so the rule that he used to inspire that discipline is that if you're on time, you're late. If you're on time, you're late. And so what that means is that if somebody showed up, the meeting was at 11 a.m., they were all gonna review game film together then if one player showed up at 11am exactly when the meeting was supposed to start, then he would get fined a thousand dollars. So even showing up on time meant that you were late. I just want to get your sense. Do you have any thoughts about that premise that uh, rules really shocking rules can kind of inspire a culture?
1: Yeah. Well, I think that all speaks to setting a high bar for your organization, right? And holding people accountable to that bar. Um, I think that's, key to building a, a high performing organization, right? Ultimately at the end of the day, if you want to succeed, if you want to um hit whatever targets you have or outperform those or outperform your competitors, um, you've got to hire the best talent out there. You've got to set the conditions for them to excel. Um, you've got to set a high bar and be able to create that accountability. I think where that can be dangerous it's if they don't have the support on the other side of that right how do i get to that point how do i reach that bar um so for an organization at least what we try to do at cleo um and that i think speaks to the the human and high performing piece that you you talked a little about in my intro um it's how do we set a high bar for folks expect a lot right and at the same time create the conditions create the support Um, so that they feel they have the control, that they have the ability to get there, right? And that we believe in them in that process. That is a
0: great point and something that I totally missed, because I'm thinking about using those rules in my own organization within Strive, and uh, we've adopted the on-time or late. But I think what you're pointing out is that there can often be a learning gap, maybe not in the on-time or late, but maybe even applying to that, that, that there could be an area where somebody says, well, I just don't have the knowledge or the skills, the time management skills, for example, to get there. And I just feel so lost and I've got no way to get there. And so I think what you're saying is we need to provide an avenue for those folks to get those skills. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah. And I think maybe that example um, ultimately comes down to how do we help that person reframe um, what their expectations are, right? Like if if that's, if the expectation is on time is late, that's a new rule and a new way that they need to operate. Um, I think where it comes down to setting that high bar for folks can move beyond just like the behavioral components to um, all sorts of expectations across the board that can be that can show up in deliverables, that can show up in um, leadership expectations. And that's when it kind of becomes all of these things piling up on one another, that we have to figure out, okay, when we have all these different expectations, you know, some have to be taught, some um, are going to just be shifts in behavior for folks, but we have to think about, are we creating the environment and the support systems for them to be able to do that accurately? So maybe in and of itself, that one rule, it may just require a bit of a shift in expectations in that team or whatever, um, a recognition that, okay, we're actually, we're being held accountable to this now, um, but an organization like that, I'm assuming he probably has a lot of other rules that he's throwing in there. And so it becomes, am I also being a leader by modeling these behaviors and setting the right conditions for my team to be able to.
0: Do and holding things? people accountable too, I'm sure. interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's not as simple as I kind of first imagined that you just set the rule and then you're good to go
1: yeah I that's mean, what i was hoping for ali i know um but i think it goes a long way in you modeling that behavior right if you as a leader are, are showing that behavior that's definitely the first step
0: well thank you for that information and that advice i'd like to turn if we could to how teams function and you've obviously done a whole lot of work in this field your your thesis was on psychological safety which is really comes down to how do teams operate better together so do you mind sharing with us some of the most important factors that you think contribute to teams working well together?
1: Yeah, um, big question. <laughs>
0: In thirty seconds, please.
1: Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I think the, I think the thing I find teams often get wrong. Maybe I'll start there. Um, is sort of setting the groundwork to be able to operate effectively together. It's really easy to spin up a team or to join an existing team and just want to hit the ground running and produce the work. And that often leads every single member operating on different assumptions about what success looks like, what my role is, how we're communicating with one another, um, what our deliverables are, all of those kind of factors. Um, and so you don't see teams do enough of the work up front defining those things, like what will success look like for us, right? What what are each of us responsible for in this room? How are we going to communicate with one another? What are we going to do if conflict arises within this team, right? Well, there's, there's so many different factors that can kind of feel like a strange thing to, to, to talk about, but... They, if we if we don't have the explicit conversation, everyone operates off different assumptions.
0: Would you advocate that that process of laying those ground rules does that get done every time a new team member joins, or is that something an original team lays out and then new people kind of get accustomed to that system?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think it always just depends on on who is joining on that team and how much how much does it disrupt the system in, in many ways, but I would say um, it becomes a quicker cycle, right? Where we're, we're getting that person onboarded into the team. They're learning to adapt and understanding the ways that people operate within the team. So I don't think it's starting from scratch, um, but a good habit to get into is like, are we sanity checking? Do we have these things documented for people to refer to? Do they have the right people to have conversations with. So they gain the context they need to be successful.
0: Does Clio have that already? Have you been a part of developing that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the it's been such a focus for us in the last year or, year or so, I would say, I think particularly in cross-functional teams. So people that are being pulled apart from other part, different parts of the organization um, and having to come together to, to kick off and um, lead an in initiative, right? And so um, I think with that comes a lot of competing priorities. It comes with different lenses on the business and what's important, right? You have someone that's coming from business operations who's really focused on the data. You have someone coming from our product organization which is thinking about what's needed from a technical standpoint. You have someone for customer success thinking about what what is a customer looking at? Um, and all of you kind of have your day jobs as well, right? That are in your in your own functional areas. So what we've tried to do and, and learn from mistakes, I think this process is, A, we've seen people try and tackle initiatives um, as a team when they haven't sit down and had this conversation and said, OK, what are we all trying to do together? How much of my role am I devoting to this initiative or this team, if it's not my full capacity, which is often the case in our organization? Um and and all of those kind of other factors that I mentioned, right? Just having that explicit conversation, it's by no means like a a solve for um, teams being high performing, but I think it's it's been a really critical for, first step. And what's really interesting about Cleo is we have uh, an in-house performance wow. coach, um, and she yeah she's a member of my team. Her name is Katie Waika. Um, And she's absolutely wonderful, but her job is to work both individually with folks, helping them perform and be successful and working with teams. So she'll often um, on really key initiatives in our company with cross-functional teams, she'll get together with them and she'll, she'll facilitate some of that conversation. So, um, something I'd also recommend to, to others out there with leading teams is sometimes having a person devoted to the role of being facilitator in that process, whether that's a leader or someone else on the team or an external consultant, whatever that is. Um, can just be really helpful for them paying attention to to the conversation that's happening, what's going on in the room, making sure that nothing's missed.
0: That's a great suggestion. Anything else outside of those things you've already mentioned that you think can just improve those uh, interactions between team members or between teams?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I think there's so much more that goes into the effectiveness of, of a team. I think the structural pieces, a lot of that is is kind of the setting up the right operating system is what i like to think about it is, are we the right people dedicated to the right goal? Do we have the right resources? Um, Do we know what we're trying to do together? All of those pieces is the organization on board, right? Do we have the the buy-in that we need for this to be successful? Um, I think in terms of how the team functions, that's where some of the pieces around trust and psychological safety come into play, right? Are you, setting up the right context where people feel like they can ask questions right even ones that they feel are are the obvious or the dumb question um, where they can feel like they can go to each other for advice um they can um they can voice dissent they can um admit mistakes right all of those factors um are also really critical for the, for the success of teams so i think there's like a whole other element which goes into how do we build the safety and trust with each other.
0: I hear quite often from entrepreneurs that have built teams in the past or have managed teams in the past that they just got exhausted by it or that there was so many headaches or there were so many challenges or that like that's a big stress for them is how do I be an entrepreneur while also managing a team effectively? Do you have any recommendations on how maybe an entrepreneur or any individual can avoid some of those pitfalls of managing other people?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So first off, I just wanna say how much I appreciate how challenging of a job it is. It's why I would never be, well, I don't wanna say never say never, but um, being an entrepreneur is, It's a pretty scary one. It's one that I've I've looked at before and said, like, yeah, it's it's a really hard job. It's easy for me to to come on a podcast, right, and and give a whole bunch of advice. But to go out there, um, do all this stuff on your own with limited resources, trying to navigate both um, whatever challenge you're trying to solve and all the people in it. Like, it's not an easy job and there's not a one size fits all by any means. Um, But I would say probably one of the biggest things that you see um, with with folks in those settings is, is being in control of everything, right. And needing to play savior to all of the things that are happening and making everyone so reliant on you that you, you burn out, right. You're, you become so critical that you can't take a vacation or you can't step away. And I think that's, um, an experience that sometimes, you know, at the very beginning is a necessity. You're, you're the brain of the operation, right? In many ways, a lot of it sits in, in your brain until you get others up to speed on that process. But the quicker you can move to coaching others to solve their own challenges, um, to learning about different parts of the business and so you're not, you're not fully being relied on. And um, there's a really good book I actually recommend called The Coaching Habit. Um, and it's it's a pretty short read. I think it's like hundred pages or so and it's a really practical book for getting I think that the, the tagline is something like doing less by getting others to to do more or something <laughs> in the process which is like yeah how do you how do you move the conversation from being okay, they have a problem here's another thing on my plate to how do I get that person to feel empowered, ask the right questions and know how to solve that problem for themselves. And sometimes it can feel like a bit more work upfront, but will pay off in the long-term.
0: Another great book recommendation that will also go in the show notes for those of you that are listening. And thank you for that awesome answer, Ali. I think that that's going to help out a lot of entrepreneurs that I know struggle with that question. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. I'd like to turn to the little, to the more micro level, to the individual level. I know that obviously we've spoken about how to accelerate growth and learning. And I just like you to share if you could. What does some of the research say or what is your education taught you about how someone can accelerate their growth and their improvement?
1: hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I feel like I go back a lot to <laughs> my own person personal like anecdotes around that, but I'm, I'm trying to expand to think Beyond, um, beyond that, to some of the research, what what's really interesting because I, as part of my role, I facilitate a leadership development program, and a lot of that is involved not just in the the sort of classroom training of that, but sort of following people through a three month, month process afterwards, where they're applying their skills. Um, they're almost doing sort of like micro experiments to, to see how they excel in that process. Um, and what I find are the people that are most successful when it comes to accelerating their development is they're truly being courageous. I think that sounds kind of corny, but it's it's kind of the sentiment of knowing that you're beyond your comfort zone, right? If you're just constantly operating and trying to develop in your comfort zone, you're not gonna go very far. So you have to recognize what's gonna push me to my edge of development, but what's not gonna move me into that panic zone, right? That space where I I fully don't feel I'm competent enough to operate. I don't have the support. Um, I, I, move, I move into threat mode, right, when I get there. So I think that's one piece is pushing yourself beyond that. The second is really being able to, being open to um, identifying your blind spots. So whether that's through feedback from others, whether that's more personal development work, leadership development work, but trying to recognize like, okay, here are the things that I'm not aware of in terms of how I show up to other people, right? And being able to say, you know, these might not be my strong points and that's okay, but I need to know what am I doing with that information? The third is asking for feedback. So folks that ask for feedback a lot, um, tend to accelerate faster. Um, We do things like 360s in our organization, but I also just recommend the casual conversation of, maybe you came out of a meeting with someone, um, maybe you're working with them on a project, Whatever that space might be, it's a quick, hey, what is one thing I could have done better in that moment? Or how could I have um, made your job easier in this process? Whatever that question is, um, I think helps people go a lot farther. And then the last thing I think I would offer when it comes to how do you accelerate your performance? I think it's having. (laughs) How do I put this? I think it's having the mental space to be able to do it like the brain space to want to focus on your development and be able to focus on your development one of the things you'll see a lot um when you look at someone's career path is we we go up and down right like performance isn't a stagnant thing we'll have good days we'll have bad days and sometimes in life we'll have bad months Mm -hmm. right and a lot of it is dependent on what's going on in our personal life what's What's got us distracted? What's taking up all of our brain power and resources right now? And so sometimes for people, it's saying like, hey, I need to put pause on this. I can't be on this sort of steep learning trajectory forever. There's it kind of ebbs and flows,
0: which may go back to the comfort zone as well. I wonder we can only maybe put ourselves out of that comfort zone for certain durations.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's. um man i'm terrible at remembering metaphors they like come to my mind try to articulate them and they're they're awful but it's someone was explaining it to me like sort of like kneading bread where you like push down the bread expands and you kind of roll it back into a ball it's sort of that like expansion and contraction um and i often think about that with with our own development right we can't we can only stretch for so long before we kind of need to contract and and reflect and think about our growth but also give us give us that space to pause
0: Is there anything that you would recommend on the feedback process? How do I get better feedback from people? For yourself? Yeah, or or if other people listening wanted to get better feedback for themselves. Because I know that sometimes it can be hard to approach people and say, hey, like, how did I screw up in this situation? Or what could I have done better? I feel like we don't always get the most truthful answers. Is there anything from your organization or your research that would indicate a better way of doing that? Uh,
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yes, there's a couple of things that I always recommend for people. One is um, like identifying the individuals that you want feedback from off the bat, whether that's your team members, whether that's um, mentors in the organization, uh, who who are those critical handful of folks that you want to pay attention to your development and sharing with them whatever your developmental goals are, right? So if you, you know that specifically you're working on um, delivering better feedback or you're working on practicing active listening, whatever your skill may be, let that person know that's what you're working on and saying, helping them recognize like, I'm truly invested in getting better at this thing. So I'd really appreciate you to pay attention to that. Um, so kind of equipping them with like, where where do I need to be focusing? Uh, and then following up with that person. So every opportunity you had, it's it's checking back in and saying, hey, um, you know, what did you notice? What can you offer? And um, I think that's that's going to give them the a the safety to say like, okay, this person actually wants this feedback from me, and I know what I'm paying attention to. And then it's being really grateful, right? When you get it, treating it as a gift, letting them know if you've applied it in a certain way. So if you get something that was really powerful, going back to them later and saying like, hey that advice you gave me or that piece of feedback, this is how I shifted my behavior. And this is the impact that it had. Um, I think that's like really powerful way to build like almost like feedback relationships. Well,
0: that's great advice. And you've inspired me that now with the podcast, I'm going to follow up with people. So you're going to be getting an email to say, what can I do better? Uh, nice. So yeah. Thank you for that inspiration.
1: Yeah. So there's a book and I'm, pretty sure I have the title correct. It's been a couple of years since I read it, um, but it was really, really good for for identifying how do you build, how do you create a feedback enabled culture which starts with asking for feedback and it's called thanks for the feedback, I believe. Um, And it's all about how do you become effective at pulling feedback from other people in service of of growing and making others feel um, comfortable to ask for it in return.
0: We have a library to cover So, we're going to read all of these books as a group, and then we're going to follow up with you and express how grateful we are that you gave these recommendations.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Come to
0: mind. Yeah. I'm interested to know if I run a team, how could I speed up the development of those people on my team? Is there anything that I can do, or is that kind of an individual thing? that each person on that team would need to engage with?
1: Yeah, I I think it's tough because every team can look really, really different. Um, I think our, I, I can offer you some helpful models <laughs> that might be a helpful way of thinking about where is your team at and what do you need to be doing, um, which is something we often do with teams at Clio. So, um, we often do off sites. My team will run with um, certain teams in the organization, either they're a completely new team or maybe they're going through some crunchy periods and we'll pull them out of the office for a half a day or a full day uh, and spend some time just digging into um, who are they as a team? What is our purpose? Um, what are our roles? Kind of creating some of that clarity we talked about earlier. Uh, but the kind of the model is looking at, you know, what stage of development is this team at? And we, we talk about it as being um, forming, storming, norming, performing. and performing.
0: Yes, have you I heard have. this?
1: Hey, fantastic. Yeah, so I think it's a really helpful frame for a leader to think about, okay, where is my team at in its development? Are they just totally new and forming, right? And so if if this team is brand new, a lot of it is around, like, relationship building. How are we setting the foundations of what we're here to achieve, what our operating system is and building trust with one another, right? Storming, like healthy conflict is starting to arise, right? How do we we work through that? What are some of the tools that we have to get people communicating better with one another, um, that we have kind of processes in place to deal with some of that stuff? Um, And then norming, right, is like, we're really getting clear on what each of our roles are what we're supposed to be doing here to getting into that space of performing. And I mean, it's it's like a cycle we we constantly go through. And every time we add someone new, you know, this the, the cycle shifts for sure. Um, but I would say if you're if you're trying to figure out, you know, how do I accelerate this team? It's first getting curious with the team about, you know, what's what's holding you back right now, right? what are what are the things that are dragging you down? What are the things that you're doing really well? Um, And then let's collectively dig into one or two of those things and see what can we shift? Maybe that's structurally, um, maybe that's from an interpersonal dynamics place, um, but it kind of depends on the team.
0: And that model gave me, at the time I discovered it, it gave me a really good insight into team dynamics. And it's obviously not a cure-all, but I think that it just really makes you realize that there's these different stages that teams are at. And. You can provide different things. I'm going to admit something embarrassing. When I first started out, there was a uh, leadership model that I like. I thought I knew everything. I don't know why I thought that, but <laughs> I knew nothing. And I still know nothing. But there was a model called, it's just like figuring out if people are supportive or if they need support or direction, I think. And, and okay. so basically what it comes down to is that it's great to be kind of a laissez-faire leader when when your team already knows exactly what they have to do they're competent they've been doing the job for years but if you have a new team member you really have to give them much more support and direction and you can't be as laissez faire and so i was approaching every interaction in very in a very similar approach mm-hmm. and using a laissez faire kind of model and and not getting not being very micromanaging but recognizing that new employees new people to a team, whatever that is, they don't have all the information. And so really stepping out of my own comfort zone to say, yeah, I actually need to step in here and provide this person with a lot more direction so that they're able to get up to that content level. And and recognizing those situational differences in leadership, I think is probably the hardest part.
1: No, I think that's such a good point, right? And something that all of us gain with experience, like we can look at models, they're helpful, they give us ways to make sense of ultimately things we know already, but they give us a frame to remember about it and kind of make it actionable, um, refer to it. But that, yeah, yeah. But a lot of it, again, it comes down to um, starting to develop a little bit of intuition, I think, as a leader, and which as you gain more experience, you start to figure that out and recognizing that it's not a one size fits all approach. So you can't just deploy one way of leading a team and expect that in every context and every situation is going to work. Um, If
0: if everybody was the same, leadership would be so much easier.
1: Let's just hope for that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's like the, the, the beautiful caveat and everything that I can share as well is that everyone will have their own unique context that they can apply this to and why ultimately this topic is so... Interesting to me is that I can constantly get to learn from other leaders that are doing this stuff, other entrepreneurs that are applying this stuff to kind of build into also my awareness of okay, how do I coach leaders in the future? How do I help teams in the future?
0: Yeah. Um, I want to turn quickly or just briefly, I guess, to resiliency. And we know now, I think, after, oh, and I've totally forgotten the name, but it's about resiliency. Angela Duckworth, mm. Grit, and yeah. so that book's come up quite a bit in the podcast from other guests, and we know that resiliency is so important to success, and I know that your field is, you know, you've done a lot of research on the field and on the topic, and so I'm just wondering, can you share with us any methods that we can improve our resilience?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah. Resiliency is a really interesting topic. I think it's really, it's a really popular topic too. Um, what I can maybe share. So I think a lot of the time we talk about re- resiliency in building in practices, right. Into, into how we lead our life. Um, what are the behaviors that we can do? Things like becoming more mindful, practicing meditation, um, developing different productivity hacks or prioritization. Like there's, there's lots of things that we can do, um, maybe the different take I can add to this conversation is um, sort of the the mindset that builds resiliency. Uh, it's actually been a really, really popular topic um, in our, our organization over the last little while is just the power of mindset um, in impacting our performance, in impacting our sense of resiliency and um, I'm not sure, Jared, if this has been a topic that's come up much for you, but I know recently the conversation around burnout in our organization and in the tech industry at large has um, become a really like prominent topic. For sure. Um, yeah, and I think so much of, of burnout and, you know, I don't want to discredit that there's a lot of factors that can go into people's burnout that are, that are based structurally and in, in how an organization is run. But a lot of it too can come down to the mindset that we're operating in. And, um, you know, there's, there's a few different ones that are really common. Maybe I'll, I'll speak to one that resonates for me personally um, is an idea of like, like a victim mindset, so um, probably a lot of us have heard of this before, um, but it's really easy to not recognize when you're in it. And I think often there's many cases in my career where I fell in, into a space of victim mindset, where I felt that things were being done to me, decisions were being made without my consent. Um, I didn't feel I had control. Um, and so instead of recognizing where I, where I could take ownership in, in some of these things and recognize, no, I can do things differently. I would kind of sit in that stewing or that kind of resentfulness or frustration of feeling like things were shitty and broken. And if people only knew that this was the problem, then um, then we should go about and do it this way, right? So it's sort of like this, this idea of judge and victim all in one. Um, and so I think for me being in that state of mind was when I experienced um, like, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would go, go as far as to say burnout, but lows in my career where I contemplated quitting, had to kind of recognize, you know, why do, why do I do what I do again? Like, do I enjoy what I do? And I think it's when I would get in this trap. And so what really helped me build resiliency was when I started to shift from that kind of victim mindset to ownership in a way, uh, if you want to call it that. And that helped me recognize like, okay, what's in my control. I want to take the reins again in um, what I can do here. And, you know, what's outside of my control is things that I'm not going to waste my time spinning on.
0: Any actionable things that you use to get out of that victim mindset?
1: Mm-hmm. So I think I mean, I think some of it does go down to the practices, which is really interesting. So, um, I think for me, taking pause and when I'm in in a moment or I'm in a mental headspace where I'm moving into that, I need to I need to move out of that conversation or I need to move out of um, whatever it is that's causing me to spin. And a lot of the times, I would find it would be um, with others, right? Kind of getting into that that whirlpool of frustration together. And so the more I extracted myself from that venting whirlpool, the better I was able to get back into the headspace I needed. And then the other piece, what really helped me as a practice was um, building in time for reflection. So I've tried a few different things. I've journaled, I've built in um, a weekly retro process where half an hour on a Friday morning, I will look back on my week and look what's coming ahead. And I think the thing that I really um, really shifted for me was looking at situations that felt like frustrations or roadblocks or just things that were, were ahead of me that I wasn't looking forward to in many ways. And reframing it as what will I get out of this? What will I learn from this experience? How will it help me develop or become more resilient in the process by going through it? and actually making myself identify some of those things.
0: What time do you do that retro look back on your week?
1: I I did it on Friday mornings. Um, So when I first started, I started doing it at 8.30 on Friday mornings. I've since moved from a weekly one to a longer monthly retro. So once a month, I now do an hour um, where I look back on um on things that are going and then look forward so i'm kind of experimenting with a couple different approaches but i found that weekly was a little bit too much but it was a great way of almost like building like putting on the training wheels at first
0: yeah that's a huge undertaking to do a half hour a week but yeah i definitely hear what you're saying is in order to get into the habit of doing something like that you kind of have to overload at the beginning maybe
1: yeah i think so and it just gave you a shorter time frame to practice in and have more like just examples like if i want to get really clear on some of the things that were um that i appreciated about my week things that were frustrations and like actually practice reframing um it's yeah i mean i think at first it just like you can feel antsy especially in places like like startups are probably the environments that you and your listeners are operating in, right? Where It's all about moving quickly. And so slowing down and dedicating a precious half hour to something like reflection, reflection feels really, um, really, I don't know, sort of.
0: Um, like sure you're spinning your wheels process, almost, you or like of, wasted time.
1: Yeah, really. Uh, yeah, you're really sort of, um, yeah, wasted time. Let's go with that.
0: Do you look back at your calendar events? Is that how you do that reflection or do you just go from memory?
1: Um, I'll do a bit of both. I definitely will look at my calendar too to jog my memory. Um, I'll usually kind of start with I'll have a few prompts of like what were um, a few highlights from the week, what were a few low light lights, or where did I think I didn't show up at my best in those moments? Um, cause I know personally, uh, maybe a signal for me, I like when I'm in a bad space and this is something I've been personally working on is it shows up all over my, place. <laughs> like, my team members. Like it's, there is awareness and energy that's brought there and it's not helpful for my team. It's not helpful for others. And so I try and figure out like, and catch myself in those moments of, you know, what was my thought track? That was happening in that time frame like what was the the mindset that was showing up for me and like what was the result or the impact of that
0: for me it's when half of the carton of ice cream is gone it also shows up on my face but in a different way it's like that guy just gained five pounds (laughs) (laughs) uh i love that victim mindset i don't love the victim mindset but i love approach to getting out of it i love the recognition of the victim mindset i think that that's so important and i really appreciated you sharing that
1: yeah and maybe i mean another quick one to add and i know i i tend to to speak (laughs) elaborately so i'll try to make this quick but um what you probably know will notice with people um with entrepreneurs or people that are um are interested in pursuing that route is they probably take on a bit of the hero mindset and that's probably where some of the experience of burnout happens um, feeling the need to be the savior in certain situations so that that often gets rewarded in organizations right and um it's it can feel really good you get that dopamine hit of coming in and saving the day or having all of that information but when we're talking about building resiliency both for ourselves and for our teams Um, we have to start thinking about kind of as I I spoke about earlier is how do we move from being being the savior, being the hero to to moving to having more of a coaching approach.
0: Yeah, getting out of that hero mindset, I imagine, is beneficial for your team. And for you, you're able to coach your team, so that they're able to take on those challenges. And and so that you're able to kind of step back and uh, maybe focus on some higher level things.
1: Yeah, well, it's just not sustainable, right? You can't be the hero forever. And if I mean, in the early days, you know, you can usually put in a good five years or so before your health starts to tear. Before
0: that ice cream. I
1: mean, yeah, before that ice cream, before all those other factors come into play, before your family starts wondering, you know, where are you at every night? <laughs> um, and so I think I think it's starting to figure out like, okay, where do I have opportunities to shift that a little bit and thinking about the long-term health of, of my team and myself?
0: I want to turn to a couple of rapid fire questions here before we finish off with Allie, the person. So if you only had two weeks, two hours a week to focus on improving a team, what would you focus on?
1: Hmm, That's a really good question. I think that one's a tough one for me to answer because uh, it just, it definitely depends on the team. Uh, I think how I would approach it uh, would truly be unpacking with the team, kind of what I said before, almost like retroing looking at the team stop start continue or what's getting in the way um, kind of like what what is dragging this team down currently what is helping us excel uh, and and then just picking a few like getting together and like voting on okay out of these things which ones do we want to focus on and then let's talk about it let's really dig into what's happening here. Uh, And then figuring out together, like, are there a a couple of small actions we can take that we start, that we put into place and we start to look at like what unfolds in the system.
0: Who are your three favorite thought leaders in the organizational psychology space?
1: I don't know if I have three. Um, I feel like (laughs) I tend to A, be more of a podcast person. Uh, Where I'm, I'm listening to all different kinds of stuff. I I love um, behavioral economics as well, so I'm oft, often listening to things like Planet Money and just uh, different NPR podcasts. But um, in organizational psychology, in particular, Adam Grant is really mm-hmm. great. Uh, he he's a writer. He's a he's an, uh, an organizational psychologist, but he's um, really applied and works with a lot of businesses to take a lot of his research finding and say, okay, how does this, um, what actions can we take for your organization? Where um, a lot of psychologists right, can be really removed when you're in academia, sometimes what you're working on doesn't translate to to the real world. So it's really awesome because he writes about how does my research translate to actual things leaders can do. Um, And I mean, just a broad, podcast that I highly recommend for anyone looking to I think develop mental models about the world whether that's through culture and organizational psychology or anything else but uh, a podcast called The Knowledge Project by Shane Parrish. Um, I've learned so much on that podcast from relationships to how to run organizations to decision-making frameworks like there's there's just so much richness in all of the things he refers to. And so I think that's like a really like high value time when you're listening to those podcasts.
0: Thank you. And that will go in the show notes as well for folks. Last one. What are the three most important things to focus on when you're creating culture?
1: Oh, man. Three most important things to focus on when you're creating culture. Hiring. So as I said before, I think especially in early days, who you hire and how you hire is critical. They're going to be your advocates. They're going to be the ones out in the community speaking about your organization. They're going to be building your organization. Um, I think the next is recognizing when you get to that point where everyone isn't just a swivel chair away from one another. Um, When you're at a point where you can't just turn around and, and, and have conversations with everyone on your team, that's when Silos start to form. People start to operate under different assumptions, and I would say that's when you need to start codifying your values as a company. Right? If you do too early, your your culture hasn't had time to to really form and and kind of figure itself out. Um, but when you once you get to that state, I think the process of really writing them down, figuring out how they help you make decisions is key. And at Clio, uh, that was a really grounds-up initiative for us. So I think it was uh, even before I started, it was a year or two before I started, um, we have a kind of an all-staff meeting once a year that we call Team Day. And um, that created an opportunity where a lot of the language that was already being used in the organization around what we value was um, put in, was kind of written down and really defined and ministries or, or little groups were created around it to figure out, okay, how are we living this in the organization? And um, our values have really, really been ingrained in our culture and become like an integral part to, of our language and, and how we talk about Clio. So that seemed to, to work really well for us. I think those were only two things that I mentioned.
0: We're just gonna go with the top two then.
1: Okay, great.
0: Tur- turning to you as a person now, uh, you've already mentioned some of the routines that you followed, like that monthly or weekly reflection. Do you have any other routines that allow you to get more done or stay more focused or, um, yeah, just feel more centered?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Honestly, I have no great answer to this one. Some days it's like just surviving. <laughs> <laughs> and that feels so cool. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, what I think is really key for me, so like like anyone, motivation ebbs and flows. And um, I find where I can lose sight of, of what I'm doing is when I really don't define what a concrete goal is for myself. And so sometimes I'll get lost between like kind of knowing down the road what where am I, where's my general direction, where am I sort of headed, Um but if I don't have something I'm energized around for, for the next six months or a year from now, then it's really easy for me to to just fall into kind of a pattern of, of not connecting the dots and why I'm doing what I do. And so for me, just having a really clear purpose or a clear why is important to me. And then um, beyond that, I think it's all the usual stuff, like taking care of yourself, getting good enough sleep. Um, trying to live what I preach, right? It's really easy to say all this stuff. Um, it's a lot harder to put it into practice. So um, I really do try my best to like anything that I I share with others is, is things that I, I use myself or I, or I um, at least have tested out.
0: I try to only share things that I've read about and never done. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I do. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Do you have a quote right now that resonates with you and why?
1: Um, so there's there's a quote that I use a lot in one of my leadership development programs uh, that I think is really powerful. And that's, we see the world not as it is, but as we are. Um, I think it was originally by a French poet. And then Stephen Covey uh, <laughs> took the quote and elaborated on it. Um, but I think what's really interesting about that in, in my world and everything I do with, with things as new, nuanced as leadership and, and working with people is um, it's really easy to think everyone in the world sees sees things the same way that we do, right? To, to look out at, at what's happening and interpret it and think that that's the objective truth when really all of us carry multiple lenses through which we see the world. Uh, And a lot of this causes us to jump to conclusions or um, create stories about what other people are thinking or what they meant uh, in their actions. Right. A lot of a lot of just like the dysfunction that can happen in an organization. Right. Is because we all come at it from different lenses and experience. And um, I think it's just like a really powerful reminder and sometimes kind of checking with ourselves uh, like are we starting with the facts in this conversation what stories are we creating and, and telling for ourselves and are we enabling that person to understand where we're coming from and really listening and hearing hearing their side of the story as well
0: a quote that as you were speaking there came to mind was life doesn't happen to you it happens for you and I think that that goes back to that victim mindset as well which you've so eloquently highlighted earlier
1: Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's a really great one. And I
0: know we've already talked about a number of books that you've mentioned. Do you have any standout in the last year?
1: And it's an interesting one. And I'm going to admit, I haven't fully finished reading it because it's a bit more of a practical book, Um, but I found it really interesting so far. So it's called brave new work. Um, And it's about helping organizations build out what they call their operating system canvas. And that is everything from, um, how do we define our purpose? How do we communicate? How do we build accountability in the org- in the organization? How do we set up our systems and processes? What does creativity mean? Um, all of these different buckets that really go into I think not only creating the like the effectiveness of the company and and helping drive performance, but also creating the culture. Really, what kind of organization do you want to build? So. I think, in particular, for someone for for entrepreneurs that are that are new and just starting off their organization, um, this is a great book to to think intentionally about what kind of organization do you want to build, and it gives you some really like actionable frameworks and um, even conversations that you can have straight from the beginning so that you can get aligned with with what you want to do.
0: That sounds incredible. And I'm hoping that you're going to take notes on that book so that I can implement all those things for myself without even having to read it. <laughs> okay.
1: Oh
0: <my> <laughs> what is the most important thing that you've learned in the last year that you think can massively impact our listeners? Oh
1: my gosh. What is the most important thing that I have learned in the last? That is a. That is a powerful, powerful question. That is a powerful coaching question <laughs> for your listeners. Is you should ask. You should ask your direct reports that question because that is, that is a really good one. Um, I think the mindset one, is really key. So I think again, just that piece around recognizing how powerful our mindsets are. Like at the end of the day, most of us are, completely capable of developing the technical skill sets we need to, to flourish. And I think if we give people more of, of the space to, to realize their potential, they'll get there. Um, I think mindsets can really be the thing that holds people back. Um, I think the other piece, and maybe this is an interesting lesson from just recently getting a puppy. <laughs> um, I have so much more empathy for parents out there
0: that's a hard job and
1: it is a hard job and honestly you know it's i i've worked with so many people that are parents and obviously having a puppy is not the same thing but i've had to really care about this little thing in my life that is the priority over anything else and so i can't drop everything and just get work done i can't i have to build my schedule around this this little puppy that needs me to keep it alive and um (laughs) so i think it's like some of the things i think a lot about is like how do we create the organizations that have the flexibility that have the um the right support in place for people that are also parents or they're taking care of of other people and their families Um, because we have a lot of obligations and stuff outside of work it's not just motivation that impacts how how much we excel right there's there's a ton of other factors that are below the surface and we don't always talk about it
0: yeah i really resonate with what you're saying and I don't have a puppy myself but i'm a man so i struggle to take care of myself so i feel like it's kind of the same thing
1: basically the same yeah your girlfriend myself.
0: i'm a big puppy <laughs> but i think that that mindset piece that you spoke about is so important and people have always said that the mind is so malleable and you can be anything you want and set your goals big and you'll accomplish them and i've never really believed it i guess or i never never lived it until really the last year and in the last year my biggest thing would be exactly like yours it would be on how important mindset is just to finish off here ali with one last question and i'm hoping for some vulnerability from your end and what we do once a week with our strive meetings is one guy that presents our teachable moments so something that's impacted his life then he also Uh, opens himself up for blind spot feedback. And so that is him saying, this is something that I think is holding me back from achieving my goals. And we go around the table and we just kind of narrow down on that idea a little bit. So I'd like to turn to you and just ask you, what do you think is holding you back right now from even higher levels of success?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. I think there's a couple things. Um, one is sort of what I spoke about earlier, which is around not having that kind of concrete middle ground goal can really impact my level of motivation. So I think for me, when I don't put the right systems in place to keep myself motivated, it's really easy to go through the ebbs and flows there. And so sometimes that can, that can definitely hold me back. Um, the other piece, I think for me is not taking risks. And I think a lot of that can come down to self-doubt, um, not believing that, um, you know, I have the skill set or the expertise or who am I to uh, to speak to some of the stuff. Like truly, even Jared, going on your podcast, like in some ways, I'm, I'm sharing a lot of information from really smart people. And um, some of that can feel like who am I to be sharing this stuff, right? So I think as much as i can i'm trying to overcome and recognize that like at the end of the day we're all just learning and trying to figure this world out uh and so for me it's that shift of when opportunity arises take that opportunity don't don't second guess myself um, that i'm really working on
0: well ali i want to thank you so much for taking this opportunity to come on the podcast i know that anybody that is listening out there has really come away with a whole lot of value. I've got a whole list of notes here from our conversation and I'm just really excited to get going on all these topics that you've brought up. So I just wanna thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. I've known you for many years now and I've always known you as somebody that always focuses on growth and for striving for more and you have achieved some really awesome things in this world, Ali. So I'm just purely grateful that you were interested in sitting down. For our listeners out there, if you want to learn more about Allie, you can find her personally on LinkedIn at Allison McGarrigal. Or if you want to learn more about Cleo, you can find them on their website at Cleo.com. Allie, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks, Jared. It was, it was a, blast. a blast.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode and hopefully you got some lessons from this that so you can apply to your own health, wealth, or relationships. I created this podcast to help myself learn from those that came before me. and Now I want to pass these lessons on to you to hopefully help you on your journey. Please know that I've got your back and the world needs you to go out there and create, innovate, and iterate. If you like this content, then please subscribe and continue listening for our weekly episodes.